The Triathlon Show 396. up everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm rose michael and on today's episode i interview brad beer brad has over 17 years experience as a physiotherapist and he is the head physiotherapist of the super league triathlon series consultant physiotherapist for triathlon australia's olympic podium center and he has consulted for british triathlon triathlon new zealand athletics new zealand and numerous olympic and world champion athletes and in this interview we dive deep into triathlon related injuries rehabilitation and prevention but before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. The Form Smart Swim Goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training right on the goggle lens, including your splits, pace, stroke rate, and heart rate. This means that you can execute your swim workout better, whether it's pushing harder when you're starting to fall off the pace or holding back when you're accidentally going faster than you should. It also means that if you're using a Garmin or similar GPS watch in the pool, you can uh, get rid of that because the goggles will automatically notice when you start and stop each of your intervals and give you accurate splits for each and every interval without the disruption of having to reach for your watch. Most importantly, it for me at least, it also adds some fun and motivation to swimming and uh, makes me want to go to the pool more often because it's just more engaging with the feedback that you have throughout your swim. You can get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on forumswim.com TTS. And thank you to Zen8. The Zen8 Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency even when you're short on time. It's a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home, even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool. And it is a perfect complement to pool and open water swimming as it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your swimming, like your catch and your power, and isolate uh, them more easily than you can in the water. You can try the Senate risk free for up to 30 days. So if you don't love it, just send it back and you can get 20% off your first order on senatewinter.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, here's the interview with Brad Beer. Welcome to that triathlon show, Brad. How are you doing? Michael, very well, thanks. Uh, as I mentioned off air, I've been listening to episodes across the years and I really admire the body of work that you've produced. It's always high quality. You're always informed uh, around your guests and ask great questions. So it's a real real professional privilege and honor to be here. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I have to say that it's always quite nice when you, uh, you reach out to a potential guest and uh, and they come back saying, sure, I'd love to be on the show. And also I listen to the podcast. That's because obviously that doesn't happen in the early days. So it, <laughs> I guess it shows a little bit how, how far the show has come. And, and it, is, it is a nice feeling when that happens. Um, let's start with an introduction of yourself. Can you tell the, uh, myself and the listeners more about who you are? Yeah, Michael, uh, I'm an Australian-based uh, sports and exercise physiotherapist currently undergoing uh, I'm a registrar for the Australian College of Physiotherapists, so that's a two-year training program with a specialty uh, in sports physio. Uh, I'm a full-time practitioner, uh, so I'm, I'm in the clinic early to late, five days a week. Uh, we're here on the Gold Coast, Australia. Uh, I grew up wanting to do only one of two things, Michael, triathlon as a career or physiotherapy. So being able to combine them now uh is is really a dream and i've had some great opportunities over the years in the sport from working uh providing super league with physiotherapy coverage to being a consultant for triathlon australia and their podium center uh it's been a great ride 
Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, let's start with some general physiotherapy and injury uh, questions that I want to get to. And then after that, we can get into some more specifics around swim, bike and run injuries. And um, But uh, yeah, let's, let's just start first with um, very general. What are the main reasons that we, we do get injured and what are the things that we can do? And we're talking about triathletes here and endurance athletes, runners. What are the things we can do and should do to prevent injuries? Big question, isn't it? Uh, why do we get injured? I guess the key point to get across here is it's never just due to one factor or one thing. It's not just due to a training error. Uh, there's other factors. It's multifactorial in, in what we say is you know the etiology of the in, of the injury. So I mean the big buckets, Michael. Uh, it always starts with a training error because you can't get a run swim or bike injury if you're not run swim or biking but that's overlaid over the top of you know the athletes biomechanics their tissue capacity or strength their tolerance their physiology which has uh, been a huge emergent era uh, uh, area i should say in uh, in injury uh, ideology so the physiology applies to energy availability uh, has the, is it the caloric intake. And then, of course, you've also got the psychosocial or psychological influences. So if you picture that as a funnel and then on the top, you you know, you pour in training error and it sifts through the funnel, That's they're the main buckets, if you like, that we need to consider when we look at someone's injury presentation. Yeah, that makes, that makes intuitive sense because uh, you can see some people and, and maybe you can think back to yourself when you were early 20s and, and you probably... Uh, think I'm talking about you in a general sense here, uh, or I could talk about me. Uh, you can think to all of the training errors that you made, but that didn't res- result in injuries. So probably some of the other factors there weren't in place that would make you susceptible. But then some of those things, whether it be strengths or biomechanics, stress, uh, or and so on, can change, and and so that later on even though you might do less of a training error, you might still get injured uh, later on for, for doing for doing less of a mistake. So, so actually that that makes total sense to me that it is very multifactorial and, and many things have to be in place. And, you know, the second part to that question was what do we do to prevent them? Well, uh, I think we should all acknowledge that we can try and prevent endurance sports injuries or triathlon injuries, but unfortunately the very nature of what we do is we often tread that, fine line of overdoing it you know versus underdoing it and and there's no magic uh data sets that you can look at you know it's you're working with a human who has these factors to consider and so trying to prevent injuries uh is 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 challenging um but we know certain things like the best predictor michael of someone's next injury is their prior injury history so you know as an athlete in my master's years now i've had a string of femoral shaft bone stress injuries. Uh, and so the best predictor uh, for me is my past. So I'm on the, I'm on the quest to try and not have another bone injury for quite some time. We'll get into bone injuries a bit later in more detail, so then we can we can get some tips for yeah what and maybe also some personal experience from you what you are doing now to prevent that from uh, from happening again. Um, one follow up on that though: uh, Are all injuries? preventable for endurance athletes would you say because there i've heard some coaches say that anytime an athlete has an injury that's a either the athlete or the coach made a mistake but is it as simple as that or is it just 
as you say, it's with the nature of the sport that sometimes people do get injured and you it might be almost impossible to know all of the factors that underline the injury. So so if you can't possibly know all of the factors that go into an injury, how could you have prevented it unless it's some there's some part of luck involved? What what is where where is your stance on that? Yeah, it's it's a huge question and it's a it's worth pondering. I mean I think it's utopian to think that all injuries are preventable. Uh, we just don't live in in a world like that. I know there's an Australian scientist, Michael, Tim Gabbett, who's quite regarded for his work in load management, uh, chronic workload ratios, et cetera. And Tim Gabbett wrote a great paper called The Unbreakable Athlete, where he and a few scientific colleagues really wrestled with this idea, is it possible to not get injured? And I think you'd have to say, well, yes, it's possible, but it's not very likely. <laughs> Because of the you know the the multifactorial causation that we just discussed, you can have an athlete that's under um, psychological pressure, whether it's financial, relational, study, uh, sleep deprivation. There are just so many moving parts, and I think you, you can't mitigate mitigate against all of them. And if you look at in Olympic cycles, Olympic years, how often are we seeing some of the you know the the athletes that we'd expect to be on the podium? coming down with an injury in the lead-up to that. Look at, you know, Georgia Taylor-Brown ahead of um, uh, the Tokyo Olympic Games. Vincent Louie, who I know incurred a calf strain injury ahead of the Tokyo Games. So you think even in their very well-managed systems, ecosystems of support and training, the best of the best are still succumbing to injury, yet they're aware of what they need to be on top of. So I'd have to say it'd be lovely if that was the case, but we don't really live in that world. Yeah, yeah, and, and in those examples, I, I I don't know specifically how uh, Vincent or Jordan trained, of course, but but I do know from talking to a lot of coaches that it's not really that common from my perspective that they would have uh, increased the training load just because they were getting closer to the Olympics. And I, I've actually seen many examples where the greatest training load is the the third year of the quadrennial cycle, and then the fourth year the training load can be. Uh, at most the same but, but maybe even slightly decreased but maybe more focused on some quality racing and so on but either way no matter what it is yeah it, it could be maybe it was just the the stress of the games getting closer and every the qualification period getting to an end and getting selected and all of that psychological factors as much as much as any training changes and and as you say it's really hard if not impossible to mitigate for uh, for factors like that um but moving on then if you do get injured uh as a general strategy what do you do then and and i think that here i'm i'm kind of alluding to especially wanting to to get in on it catch it early so that you don't make it any worse than it has to be and uh, any longer duration than it than it has to be what what are tips for that yeah it's great uh I mean, the definition of a running-related injury uh, is that you lose seven days. Uh, you sorry, you have s- symptoms for seven days, or you lose or are unable to complete three consecutive training sessions. So, if you sort of wrap that definition around the question, what do you do if you find yourself in that situation? I'm I'm a practicing. I've been practicing, I should say, Michael, for seventeen years full time. So I've seen a lot over the years, you know, thousands of patients and you see things done really well and things done really quite poorly at times. I think the number one rule is 
if you know, and you know, athletes are smart. They know when something's up, yet we're really good at deceiving ourselves often and we're like, oh, it'll be okay. I'll just do this session and see how it goes. My encouragement, Michael, to you know, athletes listening in, coaches, et cetera, would be get it checked out early. You know, just organize a, a consultation or an appointment with someone that knows the sport that you have trust in, that you maybe have a prior relationship with, and just get it checked early. If it's an onset of a bone injury, uh, bone stress injury, picking it up early versus picking it up late can make the difference between, you know, being able to compete across a season or losing a whole season. So I'd say pick it up early, work with someone of repute that you know can get the job done and be holistic in the uh, in the intervention. Make sure that all factors are being considered. And I'll always say, Michael, look, if rehab is done well, it should return the athlete to a better state than they were before they before the injury. It has to be that way. Can we talk a bit more about that uh, the rehab process in in general? When if you have your injury checked out and and it is an injury, then what are some general uh, your general rehab philosophy, if you will, uh, around injuries? Yeah, it starts with an accurate diagnosis. That that has to be the foundational step. If if you if you don't have an accurate diagnosis for diagnosis for your condition, then you'll often hear of athletes spending a lot of money being frustrated with different opinions, t- spending a lot of time, losing training availability uh, because they haven't been diagnosed accurately yet. That can be everything from a tendon condition through to a bone injury or a joint-related concern. So first principle, make sure you're diagnosed accurately. Uh, second principle would be do whatever you can to maintain fitness. So that's the beauty of uh, triathlon. It's a multidisciplinary sport. You can have a running-related injury and not be able to run, but you can bike, you can swim, you can do strength and conditioning work. So look for things that you can do um, and then be patient. That'd be the second sort of key, I guess, uh, Michael. The third thing would be understand the condition and the timeframes around it and and respect your biology. Uh, I remember Mark Allen said, you can't fast-track your biology. And he was talking about that in the context of training adaptation. But it's the same with physiotherapy, with injury recovery. You cannot fast-track your biology. If it's a bone, it's going to take this long. If it's a tendon, it may take this long. And I think athletes get frustrated and make errors when they uh, battle against that, the reality of what they're dealing with. They return too early or they don't return the right way. So that'd be a few, that would be, I should say, a few a few suggestions or concepts, Michael. Yeah. Uh, returning, I mean, that's always going to be dependent on the diagnosis, I guess, when you return and, and even how you return. But do you have any, uh, do you like to do things like run walks when you return to running, for example, from a running injury? And and do you have any rules of thumb for how quickly to build up that running volume, especially if you've been out for quite a while with the injury? Yeah, there's, there's a few factors to consider. One would be the athlete's prior history. So if you've got an athlete that's been cycling through bone stress injuries, uh, you know, every season a bone stress injury, then obviously uh, the rate at which they return needs to be mitigated, slower, more considerate, uh, versus someone that's had their first, say, bone stress injury. But there's, there's definitely a few rules of thumb. Uh, and whether this is tendon, in fact, rehabbing, sorry, returning to running, Michael, for a tendon injury is very similar to a bone injury. And that is, there's no place for intensity, as in speed work, until the athletes, I like to say, restored 
circa 80% of their normal running volume. Uh, we obviously both recognize that workload is not just about volume or, or the distance, it's also got the intensity involved. But um, if the athlete can get back to, say, 80%, then they've earned the right to start to slowly introduce speed work. Uh, speed work or intensity running indexes a lot more load on the on the tissues, whether that's the muscle, the tendons, or the bone. So it has to be reintroduced very judiciously and st- structured in an appropriate way. Uh, yes, walk, run returns tend to be best, uh, and there's a few reasons for that. If it's a bone injury, that athlete may have rested their skeleton, Michael, for anywhere from, say, four weeks to six weeks to 12 weeks for a, you know, a higher-grade bone injury. And the athlete needs to think like their, their structure. So if it's been an injured bone, they need to think like their shin bone, their tibia or their femur and consider the, the fact that the internal loads in those bones might be as high as 14 times body weight for something like the shin. Um, and so when you start to think about the dynamics of, of that, and what you're trying to achieve, you go, right, well, I've done no running. My skeleton has not been impact loading for X amount of weeks, and I'm about to go out and run for, say, half an hour, which is where a lot of athletes want to start. I'll just go out and do an easy 30 minutes. That's probably around two to 2,000 loading cycles for that bone, in experiencing up to 14 times, 6 to 14 times you know, body weight in the shin. And you know, uh, you're not going to be able to – tolerate that so it has to be a very graduated measure return it, the, the running's typically very slow the risk is much higher if it's not slow running and you just need to work that through with your therapist and your coach and make sure you you get back safely if you rush it you're likely to incur a recurrence and further frustration if three uh, sorry if 30 minutes is uh oftentimes too uh too long a run to start with would 10 15 minutes be more appropriate or, or where would be like just a typical typical Benchmark. starting point yeah i mean generally you're working to get a runner back to half an hour runs either in four weeks or six weeks um continuous that is but you, you know, a starting point might be as low as one minute jogging three or four minutes of walking for half an hour uh and then you you add minutes over the, the successive weeks um, starting back with a continuous run has greater risk. Um, and I'll often try and make the distinction, Michael, when educating athletes or patients returning from injury around this, that the first month's tissue conditioning. It's not so much fitness training. Of course, they're still gaining some cardiovascular benefit, but it's really about reintroducing the bone, the skeleton, the tendon, the muscle to the demands of running. In this case, if we're talking about a running injury, safely so the walk jog can be hard to uh hard to be compliant with but it's definitely the best way to go as opposed to straight out continuous minutes right let's go specifically into uh swim bike and run injuries so we can start with swimming and i I know that we will be spending more time on on running injuries than, than the other two but yeah starting with swim injuries can you give an overview of um the most common ones and um yeah symptoms and diagnosis and treatment and so on yeah, definitely. I mean, swimming, obviously the big one's shoulders. Uh, and most of the time, Michael, whether it's a recreational triathlete, a beginner or competitive uh, age group triathlete or a professional, uh, most of the time the, 
the structures that get irritated in shoulders are tendons, so the rotator cuff tendons. I guess most people or many people, Michael, will be familiar with that term tendinopathy, which is the contemporary term for tendon pain states as opposed to the old tendonitis. And tendinopathy basically is where the tendon becomes painful, not due to inflammation, but more uh, biochemical uh, activity. And it happens because workload exceeds tissue tolerance. So you'll often see shoulders get sore from swim training when the athlete hasn't been in the pool for a period of time. They're deloaded and then they jump back in and go. Um, and, and lo and behold, they develop a bit of a tendon, uh, tendinopathic shoulder. The other times are they might be maintaining workload, but then getting close to a race, they start to increase you know, the swimming number set, number of swimming sessions or the duration or the intensity or all of the above, and the shoulder just gets overloaded. So the term for that is rotator cuff-related shoulder pain, and the symptoms will be obviously pain either at the front of the shoulder, the side of the shoulder, or the rear of the shoulder. Um, tendons often are stiff and sore at the start, Michael, of a, of a swim session, and then they will sometimes warm up. But other times people will say, I get worse as the session goes on. So they can be can present in different ways. And and the key to treating these is you can't massage them better. You can sure make the shoulder feel better with some hands-on therapies, but it's a progressive strength and conditioning effort. You often find that their their ratios of strength internal to external rotation are a bit aberrant. Um, they may be very stiff in their thoracic spine, which affects their ability to get into streamline. And then other things, Michael, like considering their ankles, uh, oftentimes, um, or you can see this, I should say, where someone hurts their ankle and they develop shoulder pain on the opposite side. So you've got to check the ankles for a, a swimming injury. You need to check the hips. You obviously, we both recognize that triathletes can get quite tight at the front of their hips and pelvis, and that's a known risk factor for shoulder conditions. So it's normally uh, going to be a tendon. Uh, it's due to a change in training workload. And treatments normally strengthen conditioning to restore the capacity to the affected tissues. What are some key exercises in that strength and conditioning program for shoulder injuries? Yeah, great. I mean, there's so many, um, but there's a few real, you know, basic ones that would help every triathlete or, or swimming athlete. And it can be something as simple as with dumbbells, front raises, Michael, um, lateral raises, upright rows. People used to think that the upper traps were, were too strong, but now we sort of find that when someone's got a sore shoulder, the upper traps are a bit too weak. So anything for the upper traps can be quite nice. Um, and then isolated rotator cuff work. Uh, things like push-ups at the right time, great for the subscapularis. The push-up is probably the most underrated shoulder rehab exercise out there. Um and then, you know, you might do some more advanced things in a gym like single-arm cable rows, really heavy, uh, through to pull-down work uh, and different things. But but uh, I guess the key thing is someone doesn't need to do 18 exercises to get their shoulder better. Oftentimes, you'll prescribe three or four things at most and try and have the athlete really get down and, and get into it consistently to start to change some tissue qualities. And then you obviously progress until they're not symptomatic anymore. And when we're talking strength training in the context of uh, injury rehabilitation or injury prevention, what are the kinds of uh, weights and uh, reps and sets that you would be looking at? Would it be more 
lower weights, moderate reps or high reps or what 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 are we what are we talking about here? Yeah, brilliant question. Generally, when we're working through rehabilitation, whether it's a swim bike or run injury, and we're prescribing strength and conditioning, we're trying to restore capacity to the the, the structures around the local area and the whole kinetic chain. And you tend to get the best inflection of any strength deficits when you work around the the heavier heavier weights, so heavier resistance. So you might be looking at three to four sets of, say, six to ten reps. Um I'll often say to the athlete, Michael, you want your effort level, your RPE to be greater than a 5 out of 10. So if you feel like you could do 30x, 30 reps, I should say, of an exercise, the resistance is probably too low. Um, Another guideline is each set you should finish with about two reps in reserve. So I feel like I've probably only got two more left. That's good. That's where you want to be. One mistake is athletes go too light and they're not getting the gains that they otherwise could. Mm, yeah, that's that's interesting to hear that it's it's kind of similar then to even strength training for for performance gains and strength gains with, within endurance sports. Um, and the the other thing that I wanted to ask was about the risk factors. You mentioned the the main one as being just changes in workload, mm. but are there other things that we should mention? For example, would use of paddles be a big risk factor, or would it be more related to biomechanics in swimming, uh, poor technique? Yeah, there are other anecdotal things to consider, but uh, ultimately it's going to come back to a an exceeding of the tissue tolerance due to a workload change. But things like uh, that, I like to educate the the you know injured swimmer around are things like kickboard use. So I know the Australian swim team has banned kickboards overhead because it's quite a bit of compression on the shoulder cuff in that position. So if if you've got a sore shoulder. Uh, you'll be told to kick with your arms by your side. Um, other considerations would be things like anterior hip or you know pelvic tightness. If you are quite high-toned in that area, then you're a lot more likely to be uh, slumped forwards in the water and not able to get overhead as well. So probably a bit more compression in the shoulder as a result. So stretching that out is very helpful. And likewise, the thoracic spine, uh, making sure the, in particular the triathlete and in particular the long course triathlete is doing a little bit of thoracic mi- uh, thoracic spine mobility. And that can be as simple as a half foam roller, consistent and regular laying over that. Um, so they'd probably be a, a few things to consider. The other would be, um, you know, just being judicious with fin use. Um, some conditions whether it's a lower back pain or sciatica uh, a hip related concern a foot concern an achilles tendon concern quite often fins aren't friendly for those conditions Uh, so yeah there's a few tips i guess all right and is there anything else we should talk about uh, regarding swim injuries or shall we move on to bike injuries i think it i think the big takeaway would be just try and not deload for too long i know swimming can be one of those training pursuits where it's like great i'm going to take some time out of the water but if you look at the practices of the elite so the australian swim team for example uh it used to be that after an olympic cycle they can take a month or two off but now the athletes are told they have to swim x amount of times a week even if it's by themselves not doing a program 
so that they lessen the likelihood of developing a tendinopathy or a cranky shoulder when they get back into the workload. So I think that applies for triathletes as well, Michael. Just be very wary of deloading for too long. That makes sense. So bike injuries then, uh, same same question here. Let's start with, with an overview of the most common ones. Yeah, cycling, uh, it's, it's, it's different in that the body weight experience that the loads the internal forces experience are very much lower than running um and different once again to swimming i mean obviously there's trauma we both recognize that so unfortunately triathletes fall off bikes and break bones and and have different injuries but but outside of the the acute setting the overuse injuries that uh, can be quite prevalent can be things like kneecap pain so patellofemoral pain um, considerations with that, Michael, can be obviously cleat position, uh, changes in bike setup position, and something that I find really interesting is more time on an indoor trainer, uh, how that can increase risk for knee pain for a, for a triathlete is uh, when we're outside on the bike, there's some lateral movement of the bike, but when we're indoors, that's less. So that can be picked up in a joint like the knee. So I know the British triathlon team, uh, this is in the public domain, they had a bit of a spike in kneecap pain throughout corona, uh, COVID, sorry, I should say, because they were all training indoors and they weren't able to laterally uh, move on their bike as well. So that load had to go somewhere. And in a few of the athletes' cases, it was the knees. So kneecap pain is very common. Uh, obviously, most triathletes can uh, uh, empathize with the stiff neck and the sore lower back. And, and, and that's often just an exposure to load-type presentation uh, as opposed to a frank injury. What, what do you mean by, by that, the, 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 with the lower back, it's just an exposure to load rather than an injury? Yeah, just someone might be doing an Ironman preparation and uh, you know, they're up to a four- or five-hour ride. Um, they've increased it from two or three, and they just haven't developed the tolerance in the tissues to withstand what's essentially a, a flex position for you know, four or five uninterrupted hours. So pain may be generated from anywhere in the back. It could be ligament creep, it could be a bit of soft tissue, could be a bit facet jointy, a bit disky. Um, and normally, uh, if the athlete did nothing else other than continue and expose himself to that workload consistently going forwards, the body will adapt. Um, obviously, things like strength and conditioning can be very useful in those uh, instances. Um if someone is feeling pain, whether it's the neck or the lower back. So it's often just the tissues being overloaded and they, they're going to get cranky at times. That's what I meant. Right. Hopefully, does that make sense? Yeah. It makes sense. Makes sense. Yes. So, so for example, and it's also something I assume then that it, when it, it's not an injury, so the neck within 24 hours or so, 48 hours, you're good to go again. Mm, and maybe exactly. you can go a little bit longer the next time. So, yeah, part of yeah. almost part of the adaptation process. Yeah, and I mean, uh, things like Ironman preps are pretty arduous, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, with the kneecap pain, one thing that you hear, and I have no idea if it, this is true or not, so um, is that, for example, torque work, so low cadence work, would be, I guess, something that could trigger that sort of pain, maybe assuming that you have non-optimal uh bike fitting bike fit or cleat positions or so on is that something that you've seen that uh low cadence work could contribute yeah definitely i mean i've experienced that myself where um 
my knees. I've, I've kind of had 30 years of on and off kneecap pain. Uh, we, we know that if uh, an athlete has kneecap soreness in their adolescence, they're 50% likely to have it throughout the rest of their athletic years. I'm one of those two. <laughs> I'm one of that 50%. Um, and yeah, there's definitely been times like anecdotally for, for me where I've done low cadence work, whether that's strength endurance efforts up a hill, and that has irritated my knees. But then there's other times when it hasn't. So it's always highly variable. And we, we have to be careful from sort of uh, making a cause-effect correlation to say if you do low-cadence work, you, you're likely to make your knees sore. Not necessarily, but I definitely would agree that it may be a risk factor for some athletes. Yeah. And what is the or what are the best things that one can do to prevent overuse injuries on the bike? Is it just get a really good bike fit or are there other things that can be done? Yeah, I think that's great advice. Like bike fitting is a big area. Um, it's something that I've always been really interested in as obviously a sports physio working in endurance sports with triathletes a lot. Um, but I, I'll tend to link up with full-time bike fitters who I'll bring my physio eyes, I'll bring my physio knowledge, but then we like to work with a really good bike fitter who you know, has the nous with adjusting things um and definitely positions on the bike will affect it how far forwards the athlete is how far back saddle lift saddle drops crank length obviously can be a big one a lot of athletes experiencing kneecap pain associated with their cycling will do better with a shorter crank length um uh, so you definitely want a good bike fitter as part of your team and this is a common theme across swim bike run injuries michael but you need to be conditioned for the task so if you're going to go out and ride five hours, you, you may need to work on your neck extensor endurance, your lower back endurance with certain exercises. And normally, they're going to be strength and conditioning focused as opposed to you're not mobile enough to get into the position. And I mean, we've seen this, Michael, haven't we? You know, the positions are so much more based on comfort in the time trial position now as opposed to extreme radical stuff that, you know, <laughs> you get sore just looking at <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it, they are, but at the same time, they are going faster than ever. So I do think that there's there's some significant brain power that goes into them that actually have tested that probably what what also, what looks comfortable is maybe the fastest after all. Maybe because they can stay yeah. really stable in those positions. Um, but yeah, I find it hard to believe that even that the positions aren't the fastest that they've ever been considering the the times that we're seeing in the races these days so um so yeah I've, it, it is interesting but but for sure you have to condition yourself to be able to hold the position that you're trying to hold yeah definitely and uh yeah that's it's not easy i remember in the 90s as a junior we we saw jan ulrich ride a time trial in the tour de france where he had his bars below you know the uh yeah the the the, the bullhorns and um the base plate i should say and that's what we did as juniors and you think about that now and one it's not very aero and two it was very uncomfortable <laughs> yeah 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 so let's move into the the biggest part uh, when it comes to overuse injuries uh, which obviously is running so what are the most common running injuries if we start there yeah i mean most people will have incurred a running injury we know that in any given 12 month period michael an athlete, a runner, a triathlete is likely to have fifty percent likely to have a, an, an episode of something. Um, I mean, common injuries um, we know from systematic systematic review that was done in two thousand and twelve. They identified twenty eight 
um, running-related injuries, the most common being medial tibial stress syndrome or shin pain, followed by Achilles tendinopathy and plantar fasciitis. But of course, you've then got patellofemoral pain or runner's knee. You've then got all the bone stress injuries from uh, femoral stuff, pubic um, injuries, sacral bone stress, foot-based bone stress. So, you know, there's there's quite a few prevalent injuries, but uh, definitely medial tibial stress syndrome, Achilles tendinopathy sit way up that list. Mm, yeah. Uh, and, um, yeah, can can you give some thoughts around um, what, what are the, just in terms of things that we have, specific things that we haven't already talked about, like the the workload and building up gradually and so on. But for example, what should athletes do in the gym to try to prevent these uh, these kinds of injuries overall? And then maybe maybe you can pick a few injuries that you want to discuss in uh, in more detail, and we can go into them specifically. But but let's start with just some prevention, general prevention stuff for people that want to avoid any running injury. Yeah, great. I think if we think back to those buckets, you know, the buckets that uh, we need to consider in trying to prevent injury, we've got the training load bucket. Simply speaking there, we know, and every athlete I think knows this, Michael, but we don't want want to make too big a changes uh, too quickly. I'm always very attentive to an athlete's intensity changes. An athlete can often tolerate increases in in volume quite well but you throw in an increase in volume alongside intensity things like bone don't always go well uh, in those scenarios so if we're talking um training load we're watching out for for intensity it's going to be very judiciously placed into a program um we're looking at periods of deload for things like the skeleton this is something that fortunately is getting a bit more discussion but we know that the skeleton desensitizes across a across a, a year. So if you're an athlete doing year-round running, you are more likely to incur a bone stress injury in the mid to back end of this of your year as opposed to the start, which is different to sports, um, field sports or team sports, where they're more likely to get a bone injury in the in the preseason. So being wary of um, your bone health towards the back end of the season. Um, can be very useful. And one of the ways that athletes can, can do well in that front is to consider deload periods for their skeleton. If an athlete's had a history of bone stress injuries, Michael, they may do very well to consider taking the 12th week off running altogether. So a total skeletal deload week. They can still do other legs, swim, bike, but get their skeleton desensitized uh, again. Mechanosensitive is the term we use by having a deload week. Um, the other way to do that is to have every second or third week, um, as possibly a bit of a skeletal deload week that might be no intensity and 50% volume. And these are strategies that can be very effective for runners that have had previous bone stress injury, um, risk. So that's the first bucket, consider training load. The second bucket. One follow up up on that, if I can, with, uh, if, if you take the, the 12th week off for example mm. completely off running would you have to change your training training load then when you get back to running again the week after or is it a short enough time that you can just jump back into your normal normal running yeah it's a great question my experience is you just jump straight back right and and you know for the athlete that's had repeat bone stress injuries the proposition of taking every 12th week off so you're going to lose four weeks in a in a calendar year as opposed to incurring a bone stress injury that you may need to deload for 
to say six weeks and then reload for 12 weeks, it's not even a, you know, it's a, a no-brainer. But it's very hard to do. It is not easy. No one wants to stop. Um, but, yeah, you can definitely jump straight back in. Uh, the, anything else on that, Michael, the, the training load side? No, I think that bucket is covered. It's a big area. Obviously, we're just trying to share a few general principles that may may help um, the listener. But the the runner's physiology, this, Michael, this is probably the area that I think we need to do better in uh, as coaches, as athletes, as practitioners, just the the endurance sporting world at large. And the primary consideration for a runner's physiology is their energy availability. And I know you've explored this in prior episodes. Um, a lot of athletes now will have heard of the the label or diagnosis of REDS or Red S, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. But this is something that's that's such a big consideration. If an athlete is low in caloric availability or they're in a state of low energy availability, then things like bone stress injuries can be increased substantially, the risk of incurring one. Um, tendons, we don't have the evidence to prove that yet, but we certainly know for the skeleton that if an athlete has some low energy availability they may be three to four times more likely to incur another bone stress injury. And then if they potentially have some low bone health which or poor bone health, which unfortunately is very prevalent in endurance sports, so say a little bit of osteopenia, then uh, the risk factors might be up to 15 times. So I don't generally see injuries walk in the door that don't have this as a, as a factor or probably a, a causative part of their presentation. And most athletes just are unaware of how much fuel they actually need to get in to stay on the safe side. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. As you say, we have talked about it before, but it it bears repeating quite quite often because I still think that it's um, it's just um, endemic within endurance sports that yeah. that athletes underfuel. It's um, they yeah just don't not not understanding how how important it is for. Uh, injury prevention let alone being able to adapt to to training uh one thing that have co- has come out of um your compatriots uh louis burke's lab down in australia as well as some some interesting studies about carbohydrate availability uh, as well as energy availability for and markers of uh, of bone um not bone injuries necessarily, but bone reformation. I, I'm probably not getting the exact right term there, but but I think you you get what I mean. So, is that something? Have you, have you looked into that much with carbohydrate availability and bone injuries? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the little adage I try and uh, help athletes understand is that bones love carbohydrates, uh, and a lack of carbohydrates can impair bone metabolism. And remember that our skeletons are constantly remodeling. Even as we sit here, Michael, we each of us have a million micro cracks in our skeleton, uh, and they can go on to become porous and sites of bone stress. So, uh, one of the things we sort of screen for and listen for when we talk to athletes with a bone injury is: have they had a dietary change? Uh, there is evidence to show that vegans have a heightened risk of bone stress injuries, um, and so. One of those can be an aversion to carbohydrate. Um, it's really important. And you, you, you can't get away with having a caloric deficit for too long. We know that an athlete doing uh, you know, endurance training, 
needs up to say 40 calories per kilo of fat-free mass to maintain bone, meta- maintain bone metabolism. So when you, you work out the numbers, it is such a challenge for athletes, particularly triathletes, to get enough in. For every hour beyond four hours of training, there's an increase of 5% for bone stress injury risk. So I just think triathletes have the hardest job of all in getting enough calories in. If I could pick one thing that people would do, Michael, uh, to prevent injury or give themselves the best chance at warding off an injury, it would be to get more calories in. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more, even though I'm not a physiotherapist, but that's mm. also just what I see as a as a coach. Yeah. Um, yeah. So was there anything else I was going to follow up on with that? Oh, yeah. One more thing, actually. You're mentioning vegans there. Calcium, is that important for bone health? And um, yeah, can you talk about that? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's uh, what we, we talk about as a, a nutrient availability issue. So those can that can include obviously vitamin D, things like calcium. Uh, we lose calcium in our sweat, and if if we're out there training for ten to twenty hours a week, that's a lot of sweat loss. So I think a mistake that people make, Michael, is uh, in our country in Australia we have these recommended daily allowances for certain nutrients. Uh, and many athletes might look at that and go, well, I'm getting my you know, dose right, but the reality is they're losing so much calcium that they might need to triple that intake. So definitely for the athlete recovering from a bone injury, they need to be very mindful of their calcium intake. And for the athlete uh, looking to prevent an injury, it's the same principle. So it's, it's very important. All the, all the uh, nutrients need to be available for, for bone. Hmm. So, so then follow-up on, on this would be, do you whether it's yeah any any nutrients do you consider maybe multivitamin is that something that you recommend in terms of supplementation uh, for bone stress injuries even vi- vitamin d as well being a big factor do you have yeah do you recommend some supplements yeah i mean it's 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 technically outside of my scope of practice as a sports physio but that certainly obviously sits squarely in the in the dietitian's uh toolkit but um i know myself i've used vitamin d spray over the years to try and improve my vitamin D levels. Um, it's just hard to get it in through a, a food intake uh, uh, route. So, yeah, absolutely, there'll be athletes that um, that would do well to have some supplementation. But from a prescription point of view, I, I can't prescribe that. I might suggest they speak to the dietitian about it, though. Right, yeah. But it's interesting with the vitamin D, considering that you, uh, you're based in Queensland, so there's no lack of sun uh, but yeah. still you you're in the office and that's what most mm. of us most of our tra- um, our daily lives look like we were working uh, morning until late afternoon evening then we maybe go home and ride on swift or uh, we are in the pool in the morning so mm. it's not necessarily even if you live in a sunny climate you, you might not get that vitamin d and when you put uh, sunscreen on then you're also not getting that and of course you should put sunscreen on because there are other <laughs> yeah. benefits of that but yeah i think i think vitamin d from what i understand anyway is that quite few people actually get the the vitamin d that they that they need just without supplementing supplementing it and i have had episodes in the past about that topic in detail with vitamin d and it's linked to things like uh like bone stress injuries yeah i couldn't agree more i was vitamin d deficient for probably a decade because i would train in the morning though poor sunlight work in the clinic early to late train in the evening you know the cycle repeated so 
yeah, it's a, mis- a mistaken thought that if you're in a sunny environment, you're going to be okay, not necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to go into any of the uh, running injuries in a bit more detail, for example, the, the tendon injuries? So is, is there anyone that you think we should discuss more than we already did? Yeah, I mean, uh, every uh, every injury is probably an episode in and of itself. But um, if we think about, I guess, trying to uh, help the athlete out there um, as much as we can, maybe just touching on something like shin pain, for example. I think most athletes have probably had a bout of shin soreness over their uh, over their athletic years, and and it's a tricky area because. There's there's two presentations really. You've got the bone stress presentation, which is stress of the bone. You know the the diagnosis that the terms sum up what's happening. The bone's getting overloaded and sore, and that's a continuum where the athlete might start with a low level of bone stress, say a mild stress reaction. But if they continue to load that um, shin bone, Michael, at some point they'll end up with a stress fracture um, at the very other end of the continuum. But then you've got this condition called medial tibial stress syndrome, which is technically a soft tissue condition, not bony, but it can be hard to differentiate for the athlete. And uh, one of the key differences that hopefully helps here, Michael, is if the athlete has a region of soreness along their shin bone greater than five centimeters, so say they've got 10 or 15 centimeters of shin that's sore to touch and poke, um, and I'm talking about on the inside of the shin, so the medial or posterior medial part of it, then that's likely to be this MTSS. And the athlete can continue to run through that. And we used to think that if they did, they'd end up on that bony side, but we know now that that's not the case. In pre- preparation for the Cairns Ironman a few years ago, I developed a bout of this and I was a bit disappointed. Then I thought, no, this is just MTSS. I'm going to keep training. I pulled back on my volume, reduced intensity. It went away within a few weeks. So I think that's maybe hopefully a a bit of a helpful tip. If the athlete out there has shin pain on the inside of their shin and it's greater than five centimeters, they're likely okay to continue. If it's less than five centimeters, check in with your local running-based sports practitioner and uh, you need to probably screen for bone stress. And if you've got bone stress, you need to obviously rest it. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Um one a couple of questions general running injury ready questions do you ever um prescribe or recommend changing somebody's running biomechanics yeah big big area and and we said that at the start didn't we that that's one of the buckets to consider um and this has evolved over the time i've always held a belief that is now consistent with what we know in the science, which is quite nice clinically to feel like, right, I've been doing this right for 10 years. Um, Biomechanics can't predict uh, injuries. So in other words, you can run a certain way, but that won't necessarily mean that you develop a certain injury. But biomechanics can predict regions of of greater load on on the body. So for example, if you are an overstrider or you have a low cadence, uh, you are more likely to incur injuries at the knee, uh, the shin. Whereas if you are um, a forefoot striker, as an example, you may be more, you are more likely to uh, incur an injury in the Achilles tendon or the calf. So really biomechanics tells us or shows us where an athlete may be at risk 
but risk doesn't always equate to rape, so you may not develop that injury. But we can't look at someone and say, right, Michael, you run like that, you are going to have this injury. We use running retraining or gait modifications as a tool in our toolbox to help basically deload sore areas and help the athlete get back on track. But we know that running gait retraining doesn't stick long-term. So it's a short-term uh, intervention to deload an injury in an area that's, uh, that's sore. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other one, uh, the other uh, question would be, if you were giving somebody a very generic uh, strength and conditioning program to prevent the most common running injuries from Achilles tendinopathy and uh, and uh, calf injuries to uh, mediotibial stress syndrome mm. and knee pain and everything you can think of, what would be just list a number of the basic but key exercises that you would include in that in that program to kind of cover the basis of the most common injuries and and trying to strengthen those areas? Yeah, I, I, starting at the top, we need calf work, plantar flexor work. Uh, if we look at the muscle forces generated when we run, 50% of that propulsion uh, for our running gait comes from below the knee. Uh, ironically, as we pass the age of 20, we start to lose strength in the plantar flexors faster than anywhere else in our body. By the time we get to 60, we've lost 30% of propulsive force when we run. So every runner out there, Michael, needs to be doing some quality calf strength exercises. Think of it simply, do some in standing and do some in sitting. Sitting does bias that deeper part of the calf more, the soleus, and that really is the powerhouse of our running body. It'll generate up to eight times our body weight, whether we're running a three-minute kilometer pace or a six-minute K pace. So calf exercises are paramount. Then we think about the kinetic chain. Um, we need quadricep abilities because the quads do a lot of work when we run. We need lateral hip uh, capacity, so the hip abductors. Um, great exercises for that might be something as simple as a cable abduction. Up nice and tall, cable around the leg, take the leg in and out. Um, the quads might be just single leg, leg extension. We need the hamstrings. Hamstrings uh, differ from something like the soleus. The soleus works hard all the time, whereas the hamstrings are phasic. So when we're running sub-maximally, they might be doing two, generating two and a half times our body weight. But if you put a big effort in it, in the finish uh, for a sprint, they may, may go up to eight times. So single leg hamstring curls are great, Michael. And then I like to see athletes do some sort of squat or squat and lunge type movement. So Squats could be front squats, back squats, smith rack squats, goblet squats, uh, and then hip hinging movements could be a, a deadlift with a barbell, with a trap bar, with a kettlebell, all the varieties. I think the key thing is it doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, it, it doesn't need to be long. Triathletes don't need to be in the gym for two hours or an hour even mostly. It might be 30, 45 minutes. Generally, it's single leg work if we're talking about the lower limb because you can hide weaknesses in double leg exercises, but then you want to also do things like squats and deadlifts, which are obviously double leg exercises. Yeah, no, that's a, a good answer. And uh, running shoes, do you have thoughts around how to use running shoes, rotating them, when to use which pairs of shoes and so on? Yeah, I mean, this is a, always has been a, a big area. 
I mean, most people would probably recognize, and I know you you will have covered this, Michael, but things have changed a lot in the running shoe industry uh, from the old motion control paradigm. I certainly grew up in the 90s as a junior with, you know, you don't want to pronate, you need this in your shoe. And, and you know, now we're, we're seeing a, a complete shift away from that and it's about comfort and geometry of the shoe. Um, I like to just to tell runners, look, your shoes are just a tool. Um, it's a bit of sporting equipment. If they have a certain condition, they may do better with a certain shoe. Um, if they've had a history of certain things, they may, may do better with a certain shoe. Um, that might look like the runner with uh, Achilles tendon pain running in a shoe that has more of a pitch or a greater drop, a rocker bottom, as opposed to a minimalist type shoe, which will increase demand on the calf and the Achilles. Whereas a runner with kneecap pain, they'll do better with um, you know, a lower drop shoe and um, and so, you know, you might sort of give advice around that. As for rotation of shoes, there is evidence I know that rotating shoes may assist an athlete avoid injury or reduce the risk, I should say. But the reality of that is I find it quite challenging in clinic. Not everyone's in a position financially to have a whole bunch of shoes there that they rotate. So, but I, I like to see most athletes at least have two pairs that they can cycle through and and you know there's a lot of over attribution i think to footwear like we place a lot of faith and a lot of expectation in the shoe being preventative for injury but let's not lose sight that the injury rate is the same as it has been 50 years ago you know we we haven't found the magic elixir with footwear i'd be i I tell athletes be more concerned about your caloric intake than what shoes you've got on your feet yeah, that's that's a very good <laughs> good point. Uh, I like that. And uh, yeah, is there anything else uh, about running injuries or anything in general regarding physiotherapy, injury prevention, injury rehab that you want to talk about before we move on to the rapid fire questions? Anything that we missed? No, I think I mean it's a big topic, uh, but hopefully a couple of themes are emerging, and that's just you know, work with a dietitian, a sports dietitian. Work with your coach to make sure your fueling is adequate. Uh, I actually think that's the most important part. Try and include some strength and conditioning. Uh, if you can't get to a gym, do something at home at least. Standing calf raises done well. Uh, side bridging, you know, have a home routine as a minimum. Uh, and then be very mindful of of the intensity work that you do. The the risk there go, can get so high with intensity running. So you need a coach to help you monitor that and measure that out. So probably just a couple of repeated points that we've already covered yeah no but that's that's all good um and uh, yeah there's been a lot of really great points here so i'm sure that the listeners will have found lots of uh, useful and practical information in there uh but let's move on to the rapid fire questions so as you know these are one sentence answers uh and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports yeah i'm a uh, a physiotherapy nerd here it's uh it's a book about bone stress injuries that was released two years ago. Uh, I think it's called Bone Stress Injuries in Runners. Um, and various authors contributing uh, in their fields. And it's just, it's just a great book. I turn to it all the time. I know that there are a lot of physiotherapists listening to this podcast, so I'm sure that that will be a really interesting book, for, especially for them, if they haven't uh, picked it up already. And uh, next, what is an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Yeah, it's not my uh, saying. I heard it years ago, and I've never forgotten it, but that's a shortcut will only cut you short. 
So, you know, I've adopted this with my own training. Sometimes you don't feel like doing the 400 warm down in the pool or the whatever's on the program, but, you know, when you let yourself off the hook once, you open the door to do it again. So same professionally, uh, there's things that take time to do that are disciplines, calling a coach, sending an email, you know, all the extracurricular things. But I've always tried to be disciplined and not ever take a shortcut. And I think it adds up over the years. So that's probably something that's always been with me. Good one. And uh, finally, who's somebody t- that you look up to or that has inspired you? Yeah, it's a big question. Uh, good question. I, I, it's probably cliche, but there's a lot of inspiration from different people. Professionally, I've been really impacted by the work of uh, Stuart Warden and Rich Willey. They're, they're, they're very um, reputable running researchers around injuries. Uh, and, you know, athletically, Gosh, uh, you know, I honestly think any athlete out there pursuing their best is just an inspiration, um, no matter what it is. Uh, I just get inspired by effort, Michael, not just results. No, that's a good, a great point. And, uh, and of course, there are lots of examples of, of those athletes, uh, but also researchers and coaches, practitioners on your podcast. So take a moment, even though uh, right now you're maybe in a bit of a hiatus mode with it, but, <laughs> uh, but talk a little bit about where people can find, find that podcast and, and find you, uh, and Pogo Physio. Thanks, Michael. I'm, you know, you could probably Google my name's, uh, you know, uh, they're fairly easily, uh, referenced, but, um, I'm here on the Gold Coast. We do in-person consultations, but uh, I'm also online every treatment day that I'm in the clinic with with athletes around the globe, internationally and interstate here in Australia. So telehealth can be a um, a good option if someone's stuck. More than happy, Michael, to field questions via email, b.beer at pogophysio.com.au. Uh, I'm on the socials at brad underscore beer. And uh, yeah, the podcast, as you say, it's... Uh, it's in a reduced output after seven years of weekly set, uh, episodes, but the physical performance show sits there with hopefully some, like your podcast, hopefully some some good educational material for people. Yeah, definitely. If, if listeners haven't found uh, or listened to the physical performance show before, it's definitely worthwhile to uh, go and uh, dig through uh, the archives and find your really lots of uh, lots of variety, lots of really great education there. Um, thank you so much, Brad. It's been a great pleasure to chat to you and very educational, uh, as I knew it would. Uh, so really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for taking the time. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Michael, and all the best to the listeners and yourself. Keep out putting the, the great work. It's fantastic. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictraffling.com and there are links to a number of related episodes. Uh, I won't list them all, but check the episode description uh, and you will find them if you want to learn more about uh, some related topics that we touched upon or even just previous episodes that I've done with uh, other physiotherapists about injuries and injury prevention. Next Monday, I interview Bernardo Gonsalves uh, about aerodynamics. He is uh, actually somebody that I've worked with for a long time uh, and uh, he's in my opinion one of the best in the world when it comes to improving aerodynamic performance on the bike uh, so i'm excited to bring you that uh, episode 
And uh, if you want to improve your triathlon performance and level up to achieve your next goal, then there is probably no single better thing that you can do than to get some expert help along the way. And at Scientific Triathlon, we provide coaching services that cater to every need from beginners to professionals, uh, where the athlete is in the center, the coaching is grounded in communication and individualization, and the coaches all have a wealth of experience, knowledge, and coaching skills. If coaching is out of your budget or not for you for some other reason, we also have ready-made training plans for different athlete levels and goal events, and hundreds if not thousands of athletes have already set big PBs and reached new performance levels with these plans. Uh, We have exchange and or money-back guarantees for these plans, so it's a risk-free investment, and you can find out all about the coaching, the training plans, and also customized training plans and consultation options on scientifictriathlon.com. And if you want to discuss your options, you can always email me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com, and that's Michael with a K. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form, that you can find on forumswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate, and heart rate, and advanced post-swim analysis. And use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim Goggles. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate swim training to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. Even if you have just 15 minutes at home available, you can get a time-efficient Senate workout done at home that will help you swim better and stronger. You can try the Senate risk-free for up to 30 days and get 20% off your first order at senatingcare.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.